Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Delete with me, Emma Gannon, where I interview interesting people about their careers and creativity. And I'm so excited about today's guest, who is Esther Perel. I'm sure if you're listening, you know who she is. She has an amazing podcast called Where Should We Begin, which she exec produces and hosts, and it's a very popular Audible series. It's the first live therapy session, which has been turned into a podcast, which I think is genius, and you get so much from it. I really recommend it. Esther Prell is a psychotherapist of 35 years. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, and she is recognised today as one of the most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. She's fluent in nine languages. She has a therapy practice in New York, and she's a consultant for so many huge companies around the world. Her TED Talks, which if you haven't Googled, please go and watch them, have garnered over 20 million views. She has two international best-selling books, Mating in Captivity, and her newest book is called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity, out at the moment. And it's also a New York Times bestseller, looking at uh, modern relationships and uh, marriages and dating. And she is just so intelligently, amazingly brilliant. And you will see that on this podcast episode. We go into so many things in so much detail. We talk about dating. We talk about um tech we talk about the burdens of 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 ourselves and how we have to make so many decisions now how culture has given us so much choice which can be good but also quite overwhelming we talk about friendship we talk about longevity in relationships we talk about um, her amazing podcast and how raw and intimate it is and how she makes that what goes into the process of producing a series like that and we talk about therapy and advice and how we can help each other uh, make better decisions and have better quality of relationships in this modern era. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I absolutely loved talking to Esther. She's she's a bit of a hero of mine. So um, yeah, if you enjoyed it, please leave me a rating or a review or tweet to me and Esther and um, see you next time. Here it is. Thank you so much, Esther Farrell, for coming onto my podcast. It's a you pleasure. are someone who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for for ages, and I never thought it would happen. So we're oh, here. Wow, here I am. Thank you to Audible. We're in their uh, booth right now, and I really want to talk to you about your podcast, but we'll get onto that because I know that's an Audible series, indeed, isn't it? Indeed. But first of all, I've got your book in front of me, the New York Times bestseller that is The State of Affairs, and I loved it so much. I listened to your TED talk in 2015, I think, and it just it changed the way I saw lots of aspects of love and relationships. So thank you for writing it and thank you for all the work that you do. What spoke to you? To see both sides of things more. Great. If I succeeded in opening that space for you, then I'm very pleased. So the both end space. Yes, yes, exactly. So with your work, obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. 35 years. 35 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Of couples therapy. <laughs> oh, my God. So I <clears throat> do this podcast because I love talking to interesting people, but the hook is always centred sl- sort of around technology. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you kind of up front. I know that you probably ask this a lot, but um, over 35 years, obviously, a lot has happened with tech. Do you have any thoughts on whether it's going 
too much into a way of shallow relationships or do you think actually technology has been good for relationships as well? But you're going to get an answer from me that to both <laughs> ends. Um, I think, first of all, it would probably be important to establish that there has been a massive shift around relationships itself. Relationship norms are changing so fast that we are literally making the rule book as we go. And if for so long our relationships were quite codified and we knew what was expected of us and we knew what was our duty and what was our obligation and who we were, we now have a model of relationship that is steeped in choice and in options, but it comes with uncertainty and with self-doubt and with the fact that everything has to be negotiated in the realm of relationships because the rules are no longer so steadfastly holding. It's that ecology in which the tech then enters. The fundamental human needs don't change. The fundamental human wounds don't change. Love and rejection and hate and connection and desire and inhibition and exploration and security and adventure, all those fundamental human experiences stay. We still need trust. We still want to connect. We still want to be able to rely on others. We still want to feel that we can expand ourselves in the presence of another. But the means for communication are dramatically shifting and they are altering the way that we experience dating, mating and parting. And their technology is at the centre of action. Mm. Because I read a stat recently and I don't know if it's true. You know, when you read something and you're like, I've just read this once. I don't know if this is Mm -hmm. totally true. But some an, an article had said that we are in a time where they are the most single 20 to 30 year old women ever right yes, now. Yes, but that's, that is not new. Look, in 1960, 80% of people in their 20s in the United States were married. In 2018, 20% of people in their 20s are married. We know in the United States that loneliness has become the number one public health crisis above obesity. And we know that it is worse for men. So, Interestingly, right? The the women may be single, but they may not necessarily be lonely. Mm. They are still living in networks of connections, whereas he goes at it much more on his own. Um, urban life is a is a, a life that is often in, inhabited by many more single people, many more young women who are single, simply because there is a biological clock by which we have never been the same nor equal, which allows men to start the whole thing whenever they want at any age mm. in a way that is more limited, at least until recently, for women. But we first separated sex from reproduction, and now we are separating reproduction from sex. Back in the day, if you were like my grandparents' age, you just marry the first person you meet, really. Correct. Which is good in in the sense of, well, you meet someone and you like them and you get married and you're... Well, and if you didn't like them, you didn't have that much choice anyway. No. I mean, so many relationships back then did have um, affairs and infidelity going on, but they just stuck it out. Now we've got so much more choice. So there's a few major changes that happened. First of all, you know, our expectations of marriage were very different. And the concept of happiness was not about a permanent state of enthusiasm or about about a, a, an expression of self-actualization. Happiness came from having children who survive past the age of five, who are healthy. You know, mm-hmm. there were other criteria. We were on a different ladder, uh, level of the ladder of the Maslow needs. Second, you'd married and it was once for life. You know, there was no exit. Um, third, 
you married and you had sex for the first time. Today you marry and you stop having sex with others. Mm. Fourth, monogamy was one person for life. Today monogamy is one person at a time. Mm. And you can easily say that you're monogamous in all your relationships. Um, so there's been major changes. And yes, today you don't choose between two people in the village or six people at school. You choose between a thousand people at your fingertips. And that swiping culture gives you a level of a dizzying level of options, which often comes with the concomitants, self-doubt and so and uncertainty. So people practice romantic consumerism to find the soulmate. It's a real mm -hmm. paradox. And the soulmate is this person with whom I'm going to feel wholeness and transcendence and meaning and belonging. You know, all those things which you either used to look for in the realm of God or in your community. And now it's one person to give you what once an entire village used to provide. So everybody asks me, how do I know this is the one? Because this, the one, how do I know, is the one for whom you're going to delete your apps. That's the new ritual of commitments. And that is a totally new landscape. Yes, that's such a good description. I definitely would say that for me in my relationship. I'm just like, thank God I don't have to go on any apps. It's, but then I also think, obviously, the grass is greener thing is not new. We've, we've always been jealous of our neighbours or wanting to compare our lives to others. But now it just feels, it does feel overwhelming, doesn't it? But part of it is because fake news doesn't just exist in politics. I mean, you have a whole landscape of social media where people curate and filter these perfect lives in which they are always smiling, even though they haven't slept the whole night, you know. And, um, and it looks like really, you know, happiness is just an inch away for others. What is it that they do and that they have that I don't? Now, comparing ourselves is not new at all. Social comparison has, is part of, of social systems. But there is something about the lack of truth. The word authenticity, it's like everywhere you turn, mm -hmm. you have the word authenticity. That word has emerged in response to another word that is kind of curated, artificial, fake, you know, and you can see how we try to correct one extreme by going into the longing of the other part that is being destroyed. So people want truth. People want authenticity. People want real life contact. There's never been more festivals so that we can actually have experiences in the flesh, you know, and people want experiences, which means connection right? Mm -hmm. Lived experiences in response to a digitalized, two-dimensional communication in which things are curated and fake. And you can see these two things pulling at each other. I don't think that anybody wants to go back to the past. When you ask people who have no freedom, what they want is personal expression and freedom. When you ask people who have too much freedom, you have books all the time about belonging and loneliness. Mm. You know, in, when we were not free, we were writing books about freedom. <laughs> when we have too much of that freedom, or we think we do, we write books about belonging and about loneliness and about the lack of connection. We will typically write about the peace that we long for because the the I think the human truth is that we all need both. Yeah. Oh, there's so much pressure on, on everyone, I feel, these days. I, I will always find something to beat myself up about. If, if my career's going right. well and my relationship's going well, then I'll be like, well, I'm being a rubbish friend. Right. And if I'm seeing my friends, then I've... It's just... I feel like that's not a new thing at all. But um, No, but it is new because I think that the burdens of the self have never been heavier. 
I think in the past, when the when the relationship landscape was very codified, all the big decisions were made for you. When you go to work, there was the bells of the church. They told you when to wake up. They told you when to go to sleep. They told you when to show up on Sunday morning, when not to go to work. You know, we had only very few decisions to make. You didn't decide if you wanted children and how many children you want. If you had sex, you were likely to have kids. You know, today, mm-hmm. all the big decisions are on us. Am I being a good friend? Am I working too much? Am I working too little? Am I rightly ambitious? Am I too ambitious? Am I, is it appropriate? My, you know, am I, am I taking care of myself? Am I taking care of myself enough? Am I happy? Am I happy enough? Could I be happier? That's a lot of <laughs> questions that only you can answer. So the level of self-criticism that comes with it, of not feeling that I am good enough, this enough, that enough, you know, whatever the enough is, is really at the core of the individualism of our society. Oh, you just tapped into the truth. Robert. But I live with the same tape in my head. Don't think you're alone, you yeah. know. It is like you, you have this running, constant, knowing voice there that is monitoring you. Because in a way, if you think about what Foucault used to say, if you don't have the community to monitor you at the same level, then you internalize the monitor and you have the panopticon, Mm -hmm. that tower that watches you all the time without you knowing if it's watching you, but you have it inside your head. Yes. Because you know the Robert Dunbar study that said you need five good friends, 50 acquaintances and 100. I I can't remember exactly what it was, but he'd done like a tier Mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of friends and how... If you have a hundred friends on Facebook, you cannot keep up That's with right. them all. Do you have do you have a number where you think, okay, I need to maintain this amount of people or do you not put a limit on it? In my personal life? Yeah. I am a person of friends. I mean I have I have friends from childhood, I have friends from first grade. I have friends from every stage of my life and every country that I lived. I just it's had, so nice ha- having people that know you all the way through yes, your life. And, and, you know, I just went to my high school reunion. Actually, it wasn't high school. It was a reunion. We were 15 years in the same class, all of us, from wow. kindergarten through high school. And we met for the first time after 42 years. And we, one of the questions we had was, how was I then? Do, do I remember myself the way that you all saw me? You know, is there a coherence between my narrative and your perception? And it was so powerful. Um, I don't know that I have a number, but I know that friendship, partly because I had no family um, and had very, you know, very small family, friends was my social network. It was, it, it. I don't know that I call it family, but it was the people that will feed me in my life. And it is an important value for me and in value that I also imparted on my children. The notion of friendship, it's one of the most beautiful relationships because you cannot be friends with someone that isn't friends with you. Mm-hmm. It is really at the heart a reciprocal relationship. You can love someone who doesn't love you back. You know, you can have a relationship with parents that are very unequal, but friendship is reciprocal and it involves a good friendship has mutuality and it is free. It is totally chosen mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it accompanies you through life with people who you would never be friends with if you met them today, but the history carries you. Mm-hmm. And it is such a rich relationship. I have deep friendships with men and with women from all phases of my life. Mm, I love that. I think there's there's so much that only an old friend, so much truth that they can give you because they kind of see everything. 
objectively. But a lot of your work, which, and I love your podcast, by the way, it's one of my absolute favourites to listen to. Thank um, you. Where Should We Begin? And a lot of your work is obviously reconciling relationships that have become a very distance from each other and you bring them back together but I wondered have you do you have situations where you do truly believe it's a lost cause completely with friendship or with relationships yes 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 I think that sometimes you know relationships end Um, and they don't just end because there is a crisis and they don't just end because they failed. And especially today that we live twice as long as 100 years ago, if we've been together with somebody for 30 years or 25 years, it's a long time. And to, we can't only use longevity as the marker for success. Mm-hmm. You know, as you said, people used to stay together 40 years. That didn't mean that they enjoyed waking up with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> one out of the four, one year out of the 40, maybe. Yeah. So um, I think that when people ask me, you know, what is the success rate of your therapy sessions with these couples in the podcast? The podcast is me doing live couples therapy in my office with people who applied to Audible. They are not my patients, never will be, and who wanted to have the opportunity of speaking with me for three hours. So it follows my model of doing a three-hour consultation with a couple. They come from all over the United States of all backgrounds, all social class, and varied stories. In this season, for example, that we are now producing, season three, there is a couple where I basically tell them I don't think it's a good idea for you to be a couple. Mm. Um, It comes in the context and it ends up becoming quite liberating for them. In season two, there is a woman who has a partner, a male partner, who um, is quite abusive to her children. And she basically tells him, if you lash out one more time, I will not stay, even though I care deeply for you, but I care more about my children. Mm -hmm. I will not care for you and you know, at the, at the expense of my children. And I say, I support her. And I know, we know, because she wrote to us afterwards, that she, she did leave him. Mm-hmm. So the end for me is not about, the, the end as in the, the denouement of a couple is not only about staying or leaving. It's about integrity. It's about how you stay. And it's about how you leave. Mm-hmm. And the concept of integrity is what determines the the outcome, not the fact that people did stay together or not. I am not just wedded to the notion that people should stay together at all costs. I also think there's a big difference between relationships that are not dead and relationships that are alive. Mm. And my work is to believe in people's ability to create relationships where they feel a sense of aliveness and vitality, not just where they are staying. But sometimes staying is important because there are all kinds of other considerations. People have illness to deal with, special needs children, economic hardships. There's reasons for why people need the stability of a relationship. And we are not the judge of that. Mm -hmm. Our work is to help people make their choices with self-determination and dignity. Mm. Oh, it's such a genius idea for a podcast. I mean, it got so much press around it, didn't it? Because just this idea of, you know, it's the first time anyone's done it. Yeah, nobody has ever seen what happens in the backstage of a couple. 
Couples today have more expectations piled up on them than any prior generation, and they are often very isolated. Nobody knows what really goes on. And when you listen in depth to the multiple experiences of these other couples, you actually find yourself standing in front of your own mirror, mm-hmm. and you hear their conversations, and it inspires you to have the conversations that you may want to have, and it gives you the vocabulary. So there's seven million and more people that have listened to it. Wow. In a few months, it's become a real kind of binge listening. Um, people talk about it. People have pot clubs. Uh, they discuss episodes. 45% of listeners are men, mm. uh, which I think is really very important for me that, that relationship talk is not just a, a woman's concern. Um, that even though you hear sessions about things that have nothing to do with your own life, People keep saying in every episode, I find something mm-hmm. that I can relate to. Um, and yeah. it is completely raw, unscripted, anonymous, couples therapy. And it's the first time in a way that I can share with people what I do. Because we have a profession where we actually um, can never talk about what we do, mm-hmm. which was the freedom of not having to work with patients but to have people who want to be part of a of a cre a creative project yeah. um, an, an audible original series like that is that it allowed me to do the work in a different framework without having to fear any kind of ethical breach and to yeah. share with people because every couple says is this happening to others am I alone how do other people deal with this and then this became like a public health campaign for relationships with uh, that resources people in how to manage to negotiate to experience their intimate relationships yes it's amazing because it's so true it's so real it's so yeah. um unfiltered in that way because on the way here to interview you i was reading um i was just reading twitter and Uh, There's a news article, Carrie Mulligan was on a panel at Cannes Film Festival Mm -hmm. and she was saying how it's a shame we don't see more unfaithful women on screen. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so interesting that, um, you know, in Hollywood films or whatever, you know, we still just see the one-sided kind of, it's normally the man that has an affair because boys will be boys, that sort of narrative. Whereas on your podcast and podcasts in general, at least we're seeing real life. We're not seeing a movie. You see real life. You see heterosexual couples. You see straight couples, gay couples, trans couples. You see them from all backgrounds, all classes, and you don't necessarily know. So that you, I try as best as possible to actually play with the implicit bias. You don't know because you have no names and we take out any identifiable features. So you are really left with the rawness of the experience. Um In season one, four episodes are about infidelity. In season two, only one. Um, and then I broached and I went into broader and broader subjects. Season three is going to be incredible. The, the, oh, so the, some of the to... best sessions I've done just myself, for that matter. Um, I just did an incredible session between a mother and her child, oh. who is no longer her daughter um, and is only named by her first name as the pronoun. And... Um, It really taps into uh, the depth of our humanity. Um, you must never get bored of your job because there's just so many different types of relationships no, all I the don't. time. I don't. Um, and because through the podcast, I'm able to reach and work with a much broader range of couples because they're not New Yorkers. They are brought from all parts of the world, for that matter, not just America. They, they have never been in New York, many of them. 
Wow. They've never been in New York. So the first group of couples had never heard the podcast. There was no podcast. So they came because they wanted to work with me. And the second group and the third season are people who have heard the podcast and then say, I would like to have that kind of an experience. I would like mm-hmm. to try or I have a story to share or I want I'm stuck. We are stuck. And I would like to see if we can do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, because people keep asking, why do people want to share this like that on the air? And I think part of what you hear is that there is very little sensationalism, very nothing salacious. It's so raw and intimate. It's almost scary because you really are entering into the intimate space of another mm-hmm. couple in ways that you never have. And, but it's done with a sensibility that then actually you're not thinking so much about them, which is part of why the podcast format was so important. You don't see them. Nobody has ever seen these people but me. Yeah, interesting. Even the yeah. team, they record in the other room, but they also only hear. Mm. And there is something about the intimacy of listening. People listen to it in their earphones. People listen to it in their car. People listen to it and then talk about it with their partners. And there is this whole, it, it lends itself as an as a intermediate, like as a transitional object, as Winnicott used to call, to conversations. It gives permission. Hey, did you hear that episode? What would you do in that situation? What did you think about what that woman said to the guy? You know, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and suddenly you have that bridge that allows you to talk about you without having to instantly say it's you. Mm, my friend. Yes, yes, but here is the friend in the podcast, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you hear the ratio of how much you listen, because actually it's a lot of listening from you and you, you prompt things, but the ratio, they're talking more than you're talking. Yes. And, you know, I heard a very nice comment. I, I did a talk last week for hundreds of divorce lawyers which was wow. a fantastic thing to do as a couples therapist because we rarely talk to each other. And yet they sit in my office. Their shadow is in my office, right? And uh, one of the women said, you know, I listen to your podcast. And another guy said, but why do you want to listen to that? You've just seen couples the whole day in your office. <laughs> <clears throat> she said, because when I was studying law, there was this Socratian thing by which if the teacher asked you a question, you had to think of an answer, even if the question wasn't asked to you. You always had to have an answer ready. When I listen to your podcast, I always have my answer ready. And then I watch you go. And then I realize that you're going in a completely different direction <laughs> of anything that I would have done. And that freshness is what compels me. And the reasons for why people listen are very diverse, actually. Um, would you say that most people should kind of try therapy rather than ask their friends for advice? No, do you, absolutely Do you think not. friends can give good sort of friends counseling Friends can sessions? sometimes give good advice. Some friends can sometimes give terrible advice. Friends sometimes over-identify with you. Friends, but on the other hand, can lift you up when you collapse, can believe in you when you are mired in self-doubt, uh, can can come and, and, cook, and cook for you when you are not able to nurture yourself. So... Um, it's it's a lot of different things that friends can do. It's difficult I, to know sometimes whether to take the friend's advice or if they're saying 
meaningful things, but not the right things. That's true. And sometimes you have friends who have more who, have, who are more forceful than you, and they, they they think they know what you want, and you don't know really how. For example, one of the things the divorce lawyers were talking about was those clients that they have who are in the midst of a divorce, which they don't really want because the Greek choir chorus that is behind them of friends is telling them you must leave. You know, they have only one option is get out. And that's not really what they want, but they don't know how to resist the chorus. Mm -hmm. So this is a perfect example of the voices of friends that uh, are overriding you. Mm -hmm. I think today therapy uh, is one of the endeavors. It's not either friends or therapy. I think you can, I bring people's friends to the therapy sessions, Mm -hmm. first of all. That's a... That's a given. I do not only see the person alone. I want to see them in their context Mm. because that's where their resources lie. And if they have partners, it's partners. If they have siblings, if they have close friends. Um, I think that one of the most important things that has changed for couples therapy is that definitely for a long time, two things, I would say. For a long time, people went to couples therapy. There was not much couples therapy. It was family therapy. And in the course of that, we realized that maybe there were some issues between the couple and there was a reason why the child didn't want to go to school because mm. he was afraid that when he would leave that they would start fighting, for example. Mm. And that's when we knew it's a couple's issue. The child is just a symptom of a different issue. Then we began to do couples therapy more and more because this is the first time in history where um, the survival of the family depends on the quality of the connection between the couple. It's the happiness of the couple that determines if the family will stay together or not. And that was never the case before. Then we used to do couples only when things were problematic. And of course, many people come when they pass due date. Today, people come early on in the relationship. And it used to be, if you already have to go to therapy in the beginning, then it wasn't meant to happen. No, not at all. We all need relationship school. And this is one of the few things we're not learning anywhere these days. So come early. When people go alone, they come to say, I want to check something out about me and my life. When people come with their partner, they usually say, here, I came to be an expert to tell you what's wrong with my partner. Fix it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they don't come to see themselves. Uh, That's one of the big differences. I think that the process of self-reflection at an age where we have so many decisions to make by ourselves, therapy has become a central occupation and preoccupation in the lives of Western individuals. Mm. I mean, that's why the podcast is so powerful. It's like you're getting passive therapy. And I mean, yes, people are, they don't use the word therapy. They don't say, I feel, they just feel like they are in relationship school. They feel like they're, there are all these situations that they have experienced in one variation or another, and they see how other people are addressing this. They see the things they want to try to say, and they've never been able to say it even to themselves, and they see someone struggle to articulate their own shame, their own guilt, their own pain, their own sadness, you know, those major experiences of life. They, they, they use it sometimes to say to their partner, you know, we too have this issue and we've never addressed it. Um, um, and then if it, a, the interesting thing is that it's become a training for therapists as well. Many wow, coaches yeah. and therapists are listening to it because we either don't see each other's work. You know, we don't see our colleagues' work. And so if you want to know what does Esther Perel do and how does she work, this is the closest you will ever get to yeah. knowing it. You, I'm bringing you into my office Wow. Um, it's worldwide. People are listening to it in a hundred and 50 countries. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, what they write is extremely moving. 
Um, it, must be, it must be hard to pick. You must get so many people. We have thousands of applicants mm. so far. But, um, you know, you want to make sure that people really know what it involves as well. And so the screening is done very, very carefully. And once they are screened, they apply like all people apply who come to see me. It follows really the process of my own work. Mm. You write to me. You, there's a set of questions that I'm asking you to address in your introduction, and then and then we meet. Yeah, um, it's interesting with um, therapists because I find, obviously, especially listening to your podcast, it's obviously totally one-sided. It's about that couple, and I I read your work a lot, and I listen to the podcast a lot, and I've never really thought about kind of your like if you have a relationship. But then I did notice in the dedication, that's the first time I've ever seen um, you say. You, is it to your husband, mm-hmm. you say? Yeah. And I just thought, um, are you quite a private person then? People don't know much about you, but you must want it that way. So I'm married for 35 years. Um, people know a lot of different things about me, but not necessarily about the intricacies of my relationship. I have two children who need me to be their mother and they don't need me to display my personal life. I also think that... My choices are my choices. My li- and I, I think that if you want other people to have an unencumbered space to think about theirs, you have to stay out of the mm-hmm. way. Otherwise, you create reactions. Oh, but Perel this, Perel that. And I think it's really important for people to... I'm here to offer a, a space in which you can think what worked for me. You know, one day we'll discuss it uh, mm-hmm. over a glass of wine kind of thing. But I do talk about my background. I talk about the most important influences in my life. I talk about my parents. I talk about my children. I talk about the fact that I'm 35 years in a long-term relationship. And when people ask, you know, how does all what you write about affect your family or your husband? My husband has said that he's writing a sequel, How I Got My Wife to Write a Book About Eroticism. <laughs> That's his title. <laughs> and I just thought it's a, you know, he should write the story. Yeah. No, but I just think it's amazing how how neutral you can be. And actually, I feel really inspired by that because actually when I'm listening to my friends who have issues or problems or, or they're asking me for my advice, I mean, I'm not a therapist, obviously, but before putting my stamp on it, I should probably be a bit more neutral. I don't know if, look, I am very opinionated. <laughs> And I am non-judgmental. And I try to make clear where I end and where you start. Of course, I'm not neutral. If you, know, if you have lost someone, if I, I will go to the places where I lost someone. It's from that place that I will try to relate to your sadness and to your pain. But what worked for me may not at all be what works for you. And it's that very fine line between my ability to connect and to empathize with you without having to intrude and impose upon you so that what is me becomes you. Mm. And it is that line between connection and boundaries. That is so interesting because I think where a lot of people go wrong with with friends giving advice is when, for example, say um, I've broken up with someone and we've been going out for four years and then, oh, got, I, and then, I, you, told, and then I told you oh, I always thought he was no good yeah, and then yeah and also the oh yeah I remember when that happened to me and then someone talks about um, a boyfriend they went out with for a week and then they compare them and then you think that's not the same right and um, I'm sure that happens with much bigger tragedies as well when someone says oh yeah I felt like that before and it's sort of 
yeah, it's really interesting, that fine line that you say. But then yesterday I gave a talk with Baratunde Thurston in New York and it was called uh, What's Next for Men? And he told about a moment where he met a friend. And for the first time, the two of them began talking very... I don't even know if it was a friend, actually, if maybe an acquaintance. And they began talking about the fact that both of them had friends who had committed suicide. And he said that was such a different way of engaging with another man. Normally, you would start comparing the scores of your teams on the, mm. on the sports, you know. And so sometimes that engagement with a shared experience is actually profound. It's the intrusion. It's the notion that what's yours is theirs, or it's the desire to level my one-week relationship with your four-year relationship. As, you know, we don't have to be the same in order for me to relate to you and you to me. And I think that is one of the major challenges today because in our identity politics, we have almost created a way of thinking that you cannot understand me unless you have gone exactly to what I have gone through. Mm. If that was the case, I couldn't be a therapist because I have not gone through many of the things that the people that I work with have gone through. So I reach out to them through the broad human aspects of my experience that allows me to understand. Mm -hmm. I may not have known this betrayal, but I may have known something about betrayal. And from that place, or rejection, or abandonment, or death, or illness, or loss, you know, it's, it's not necessary to be one and the same in order to understand. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes the illusion that it's one and the same, like you just described, leads me into distorted advice. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, just, follow me. Yes, totally. <laughs> and that's actually, I guess, why a lot of people can be storytellers, because they can go to that place without actually having ever experienced that Correct. direct thing. Correct. Um, do you Which think you are. Mm. You are a storyteller. Yeah. Everything I've done is about creating, even my training program for therapists and coaches, it's sessions, is about, you know, a multidisciplinary, non-judgmental, inclusive and cross-cultural. It has to have a global component to the way of engaging with the challenges of modern relationships. Mm -hmm. And I am one of the guides mm -hmm. that helps you navigate these challenges today. Thank you so much. You are absolutely incredible and i and i'm so thankful that you open up these nuanced dialogues and conversations because we need so much more of it so thank you so much i'm very thankful to you too thank you <laughs>